so welcome everyone to the January edition of the AONA uh, Trauma Journal Club, this one on rotational ankle fractures. Um, I am Carolyn Tuga. I'm your one of your moderators for tonight. And with me, I have Mary-Kate Erdman from the University of Chicago, uh, Damaya Hargett from Ventura County Medical Center, and Augustine Saiz from uh, University of California, Davis. So we have with us our guest lecturers for tonight. We've got Justin Haller from the University of Utah, Milou Fardegan from the University of Arizona, Tim, Tim, Edim, uh, sorry, Tim White from the Edinburgh Clinic uh, in the UK, and then David Sanders from the University of Western Ontario in London, Canada. So as an overview, these monthly series are divided according to anatomic location or injury patterns. So tonight, rotational ankle injuries. Um, and we'll interview authors from landmark orthopedic trauma articles to explore a little bit about um, why the study was done, its effect on practice, and any key takeaway points. But basically, after these introductions, we'll start with uh, my interview with Dr. Sanders on the operative versus non-operative treatment of unstable lateral malleolar fractures, an RCT. Um, early weight-bearing and range of motion versus non-weight-bearing and immobilization after overinduction and internal fixation of unstable ankle fractures will uh, follow, which is Dr. Uh, Saez's interview with Dr. Dagan. And then uh, Dr. Erdman will be interviewing Dr. Holler with, um, on the article, Plafont Malreduction and Taylor Dome Impaction Accelerates Arthrosis After SAD Ankle Fracture. And then finally, uh, Dr. Hargett will be interviewing Dr. White on uh, a prospective RCT of the fibular nail versus standard open reduction internal fixation for um, fixation of ankle fractures in elderly patients. And then after those four articles um, have been run through, we'll go and open up to the questions and the discussion period. Hi, everyone. Um, I have with me Dr. David Sanders from the University of Western Ontario in Canada. Um, he's the lead author on the paper, Operative versus Non-Operative Treatment of Unstable Lateral Malleolar Fractures, a Randomized Multicenter Trial. Um, this was published in JOT in 2012 and of note was the recipient of the Boval Award for Best Paper at the 2010 OTA Annual Meeting. So good afternoon, Dr. Sanders. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Good afternoon, Carolyn. I, I was just wondering, this was a very impactful study. Can you give us a bit of the background for it? Sure. Yeah, it kind of all actually dates back to, you know, what I experienced in my own training as, a, as an orthopedic resident, um, which actually predated the start of the whole wave towards doing stress examinations and that. And certainly when I was a resident, all these isolated lateral malleolar fractures would have been treated in a cast. And uh, when I got into practice, <clears throat> after a couple of years, the idea of doing a stress test on an isolated lateral malleolar fracture came into play. And that was something I wasn't really sure if that was something important that I should add to my practice, something I should include, or, or honestly, something that we could probably uh, do without. It was such a, it became such a controversial topic um, without really good generalized agreement that I thought it warranted more study. And in particular for this one, because it's, you know, one of the, honestly, one of the simplest fractures that we deal with in orthopedic trauma. And, you know, you look at this little simple isolated lateral malleolar fracture and think, how can this be such a controversial topic? So I thought, man, this could really use a good answer. Yeah. Um, so this was a randomized control trial at multiple Canadian centers led by the, or powered by the Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Society. 
Um, right. And they, you guys looked at one year functional and clinical outcomes of the non-operative versus operative management of these stress positive, unstable distal fibula fractures. Is that correct? That's exactly it, yeah. Okay, and specifically looking at non-union, malalignment, surgical site infections, removal of hardwares, and patient reported outcomes. Exactly, we're mostly interested in whether it was um, safe to do surgery or not to do surgery on these patients or if we're possibly exposing people to a big risk of misalignment down the road. Okay, and can you describe how you assessed ankle stability and determine these stress positive ankles? Uh, yeah, it was basically an external rotation stress test in this study. So the patient would come to clinic. <clears throat> to qualify for the study, their static x-rays had to be basically normal with no evidence of any Taylor shift. And then in the clinic, not using anesthesia, no local or anything like that, we basically have them supine with their foot on a, uh, on a, a pleural machine and perform a fairly gentle external rotation stress maneuver under live pleural, and if the medial clear space opened, then they were considered stress positive. Okay. And once they were determined to be stress positive, how did the operative versus non-operative groups um, get treated? So we had a, uh, because it's a multi-centered trial, what we've typically done with our Canadian trauma group is we have to come to a consensus on what would be necessarily a, an appropriate treatment for each group. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, but it has to be sort of within the standard of care for both the operative and non-operative group. And, and that's just how it has to work in a, when you get a multi-centered trial going. You have to be, everyone has to be happy with the protocol or else you just won't be able to get enough patients enrolled. So for this one in the operative group, you could treat them with either a posterior plate or a, a lateral plate with a leg screw, <clears throat> anti-glide or neutralization technique. Uh, but they did require uh, stable fibular fixation and restoration of length. And then they could be mobilized afterwards with a, uh, an air boot uh, and protective weight bearing. Patients in the non-operative group, um, they were a little bit more controversial. And most of us uh, preferred to treat these patients in a cast, non-weight bearing. But honestly, some centers uh, don't have quite as good access to cast techs. And in, in those centers, the use of an air cast boot um, and even a bit of protective weight bearing would be the standard of care. So it's sort of uh, defined by the center's usual practice for the study. Okay. And what were the key findings? Well, overall, there weren't any major statistically significant differences between the group. If you looked at the patient outcome scores, they were very similar between the two groups with uh, really no detectable differences between the operative and non-operative side. However, there were a number of patients who developed misalignment in the non-operative group, and it was eight patients out of about 40 in the non-operative group, so about a 20% risk of misalignment. And in the operative group, we had one patient who had a surgical site infection that required, required an operation, and five other patients who required hardware removal um, for irritation. So both groups had their share of, uh, of complications, I would say despite the fact that the outcomes were generally similar between the two. Was any of that surprising in terms of the findings to you? You know, a little bit. I was a little bit more concerned that these stress-positive um, ankle fractures would develop misalignment. Mm -hmm. So to a certain extent, this study um, gave me much more confidence in treating these 
potentially unstable lateral malleolar fractures non-operatively. <clears throat> I was concerned that we'd have a real high rate of significant misalignment uh, as an outcome of this study, and, and so were some of the co-authors. At the time, we were wondering if it was even safe to do this study. But as it turned out, the vast majority, or perhaps not the vast majority, but the majority of patients in the non-operative group actually did quite well. And what do you make of the 20% malalignment in the non-operative group in terms of outcomes since, you know, you make mention of this a little bit in your discussion, but, you know, we looked at one-year functional outcomes. Any thoughts on long-term uh, functional outcomes or future study? It would be really good. It would be fantastic if we could bring everyone back and re-examine them and repeat their radiographs and, uh, and recheck everybody. Um, on the good side of things, we picked up um, the most significant loss of malalignment was picked up early. We had one patient who had to be converted to the operative group. They basically did uh, develop substantial instability and paler shift and got surgery on it and ended up doing fine. There were uh, five patients, I believe, who had a misalignment detected late who didn't end up getting surgery on it. And reassuringly, I've never actually had to operate on any of these patients late due to symptoms. Um, as far as I can tell, they're all doing well symptomatically and functionally. So I guess the big question is, is this, you know, one millimeter of lateral tailor shift, is that actually a significant concern for people? Does it cause problems down the road like arthritis or not? And unfortunately, I think the jury on that is still a little bit out. Okay. Um, did you get any feedback or uh, interesting responses to this publication? Any hesitation to treat to stress positive ankles non-operatively? You know, what was really awesome is we had two reviewers who had completely different viewpoints on whether they should be treated operatively or non-operatively. Mm. So, you know, we submit the publication or the manuscript for publication and you get the review back. And one of the reviewers was absolutely um, shocked that we would do this study and treat these patients non-operatively. And a second reviewer thought, what are you doing operating on any of these patients? That's crazy. <laughs> Yeah. So I, it was actually uh, kind of fun to go through that. So there was a little bit of controversy, which uh, a little bit of tension between the different reviewers um, that made this really worthwhile to, to look at. Yeah. Um, any modifications or improvements you would make to the study now, 10 years later? Well, I think that there um, are some real potentials to kind of um, to think about this a little bit more scientifically. For one, like is a is a stress test really a binary outcome of yes, it's stable or no, it's unstable, or is it more of a, a graded degree of instability? And I think that the, the one patient, for example, who failed early actually had quite a positive stress test where it went from sort of four millimeters to like seven or eight millimeters of opening. And I maybe there is a, a line, I don't know what it is, but maybe there's a line at which you have to say this is a really positive stress test and really needs to be worked on. So I think there's a little bit more subtlety maybe to the results of the stress test than, than certainly I appreciated when we did the study the first time around. Mm -hmm. The most obvious thing is that it would be great to have way more patients involved and it would be great to have longer term follow-up. But you know, then again, operative versus non-operative studies are difficult. And it took us four years to enroll enough patients for doing this relatively small study. Mm -hmm. So as much as I would like to have far more numbers, it's, it's a tough challenge. Right. And was there any subgroup analysis uh, of, of the, the patients in each group? For instance, you know, the smokers that you mentioned or the differences in the non-operative 
uh, treatment groups? So we have a, um, uh, the third author on the study is Brad Corbett. He works for Statistics Canada and he was a real stickler for the whole stat side of things. So we hadn't defined subgroup analyses a priori prior to starting the study. So okay. he was very resistant to doing anything like that. Okay. However, we did look at the numbers and, uh, and I, I think you're absolutely right that the, the patients that you think would be at risk of problems like the smokers and the diabetics, those are the ones that run into problems with misalignment and with operative complications. So 100% it would be great to do a solid subgroup analysis uh, on these patients. Okay. And has your application of these findings changed over the last 10 years? Um, I think there's been some improvements to sort of how we do a stress test on patients. Um, so, so the first thing is that, um, number one, I'm, I'm really pretty happy to treat an older, lower demand patient non-operatively with any kind of positive stress test. At the time, we were doing the external rotation stress test, but now I, I'm probably satisfied if someone gives me a history of having walked on their ankle prior to getting an x-ray or, or consistently prior to getting an x-ray or a gravity stress test is quite good. I, I'm not quite as much of a stickler of doing this formal external rotation stress test. Mm -hmm. And I still, uh, I think that there's definitely a role for operative treatment in the, uh, in the younger patients with a positive stress test. So really those under 40 active types uh, that, that really want a, a perfect outcome. Um, I still apply this uh, sort of algorithm fairly strictly that if they have a positive stress test, they will usually get an operation. Anything else you'd want to add about this study um, or highlight or summarize that we didn't touch on? No, I think that really the bottom line was that, um, you know, the non-operative treatment of an undisplaced ankle fracture is still a safe treatment, um, still quite a reasonable way to go for the vast majority of patients, and you can reassure them that they're, they're probably going to do very well with that. Um, <clears throat> and and it's uh, you know it's reassuring for patients to hear that and to know that uh, what we've been doing all these years has has probably been pretty much the right thing for most people. Okay, great. Um, well, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. All right, hi everyone. Uh, this is Augustine Saez. I'm an orthopedic trauma surgeon at UC Davis, and I'm talking with Dr. Uh, Degan uh, at the Core Institute, University of Arizona in Phoenix, about her paper, early weight bearing and range of motion versus non weight bearing and Immobilization after open reduction, internal fixation of unstable ankle fractures, a randomized controlled trial published in JOT in 2016, and also noteworthy, a 2013 Volvo Award paper at OTA. So uh, thanks for uh, being on, Dr. Dagon, and uh, taking the time to speak about this uh, exciting research. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Um, I guess I'd like to start off with kind of where did the idea generate from and uh, how did you get all these uh, surgeons and quite the list of people uh, involved in a study like this? Uh, well, the idea started when I was a resident. Um, we uh, at University of Toronto, we have to, uh, we have a one year of research where we have to um, conduct research that year. And I was kind of brainstorming with uh, some of my um, supervisors about potential ideas. And Dr. Kreter actually, who's um, one of the authors on the paper, came up with the idea because um, in general, he would allow his uh, ankle fractures to wait bare immediately post-operatively. And some of the other surgeons at the same hospital would wait two weeks, some four weeks, some six weeks. So it was quite variable. And um, 
um, essentially because of that variability, we thought it would be interesting to conduct a study to see is there really a difference between early to delayed um, weight bearing and mobilization. And the reason we came up with the two weeks was really just picking a time spot that everyone would be happy and would participate in. Um, some of the surgeons weren't so comfortable allowing immediate weight bearing. So that's how we ended up with the, the two weeks uh, compared to kind of the standard six week um, non-weight bearing, which was traditionally uh, what was done at the time. Nice. Uh, obviously, uh, impressive randomized controlled trial in orthopedic surgery. No surprises, an award winner. What went into uh, being able to do a randomized controlled trial, getting people to participate in uh, buy-in from surgeons who are on one side of the issue or the other? Um, well, initially we started it at, at the one site at Sunnybrook um, Health Sciences, and we got buy-in from the other surgeons um, saying, hey, this is a potential study we're interested in. Would you be happy participating if we picked, let's say, two weeks and six weeks, if we had these say, time spots? And most surgeons were happy participating in it. And then after we started it at that site, I moved on with my rotations and went to the other level one trauma center in Toronto, St. Michael's Hospital. And I basically started the study there as well to make it multi-center to basically increase the enrollment and decrease the time needed to complete the study. Um, it was pretty easy getting surgeon uh, buy-in, especially trauma surgeons. Um, in terms of patient buy-in, uh, really, you just had to sit down and talk to the patients. And so I would routinely spend maybe 30 minutes or so talking to the patients, explaining the study, why we're doing it, the reasoning behind it, that both methods are done. We don't really know what's better. And um, really, the length of time you would spend talking to the patients would essentially correlate with them signing up for the study or not. Um, so that's essentially how we did it <laughs> nice that's awesome so you're kind of the bridge though bringing the study from one place to another that's cool um yeah so you know your study endpoints a lot of them that we would expect on there: range of motion kind of some patient report outcomes with the sf36 uh functional scores of the ankle the return the work one being the primary outcome what was the uh impetus for that it's a little bit different yeah so um um, initially, we were thinking of what would be, um, you know, the whole idea of letting people walk earlier would be to potentially get them out to work sooner and, you know, rehabilitate um, earlier. And that's why we started with the um, uh, return to work as the primary outcome. And there was some literature at the time from other authors looking at return to work and potentially it uh, being improved with early weight bearing, which is why we um, went with return to work. But in, in hindsight, um, I think one of the, um, potentially the way we could have made it better is instead of capturing, it was a dichotomous outcome, as in have you returned to work, yes or no, at this point in time. Um, so that made it more difficult to show a difference compared to if you were measuring it linearly in, in terms of how many days were you off of work. Um, so we tried to go back and capture that uh, as well, but it was uh, made more difficult once uh, the outcomes are captured. Very interesting. Nice. So in terms of the results you got back, you know, the early weight bearing group, better ankle range of motion, better SF36 scores, mental and physical, kind of some of the things maybe you would expect. Any results that you found that were surprising or maybe a little bit counterintuitive? Um, I think, as you said, most of it was pretty common sense. They, uh, they'll be less stiffer and happier because they don't have a cast on. 
Uh, one thing that was surprising was the, um, the uh, rate of hardware removal or um, patients that had booked to have hardware removal in the future. So they were already booked for surgery to have hardware removal. And this is Canada. So just because you want to have your hardware removed now, it doesn't mean you have it removed now. It could be six months from now, <laughs> but they were either removed or booked to have it removed. And that was a surprising um, finding that we found. We didn't think it would be such a difference, uh, 10 in one group versus uh, I think just one in the other group. And um, once we, uh, we saw that, we started talking to other, uh, other people at uh, meetings and uh, courses to see what their um, uh, experience has been. And some of the other surgeons as well said, once you start mobilizing earlier, and we, we thought it was probably the range of motion as opposed to the weight bearing, that when you mobilize sooner, the soft tissues and tendons, especially perineals, get used to um, the implants being there and there's less scarring in and potentially less irritation from the implants um, uh, with the early mobilization as opposed to the, the delayed. Nice. In terms of, you know, context, so randomized controlled trial, 110 patients, pretty evenly uh, distributed, one-year follow-up. How did this start changing people's clinical practice, or what was kind of your feedback when you presented this and then following publication? I mean, uh, basically, after this, I uh, started, um, you know, encouraging people and uh, presenting and talking at meetings and various courses that, hey, it's safe to to do early mobilization, early weight bearing, and early rehabilitation. So, um, and uh, I think it's a lot better now than it was at the time. That kind of knowledge translation, um, was, it took a while to get out there. And I find it uh, interesting because in Europe, they're they're um, a lot more aggressive in terms of early mobilization, early weight bearing. Um, in uh, in England and Netherlands and various parts of Europe, they're a lot more aggressive. It's really the U.S. that's more conservative. So um, I basically try to uh, teach and preach <laughs> whenever I'm at uh, courses and meetings. And I think it has gotten better, especially when I see now people in the community, they are, um, they are allowing earlier mobilization. Nice. Um, and then in terms of the early mobilization, were they wearing any like cam boot or anything protective or was it kind of up to the patient or anything? It was, it was early protected weight bearing. So they basically got a, um, it wasn't a cam walker, but it was essentially a boot that they got and they were allowed to at two weeks start weight bearing as tolerated and take the boot off, move their ankle up and down and uh, do the range of motion. And uh, once the six week uh, mark hit, they were allowed to wean off of it. Um, so it was really the same thing. And the other, the six week um, uh, delayed weight bearing group had essentially the same thing, just that at six weeks, that's when they got the boot and they were told to wean off of it. So it was protected weight bearing in a boot. Excellent. Yeah. Um, any, so is this your clinical practice now or any further adaptations since this publication? Um, that's my clinical practice. So, uh, and this excluded synosmosis injuries or posterior malleolus fracture that needed fixation. So a small posterior malleolus that you leave alone, I still let them wait there uh, at two weeks. If it's a large piece that I fix, then I may uh, protect it. I don't think there's any evidence really for those fractures. We are actually doing another randomized control trial, essentially the same trial looking at syndesmosis injuries now. So comparing two weeks to six weeks in um, patients who need syndesmosis uh, fixation. And um, we have, I think about 20 or so patients randomized. We just started enrolling uh, a few months ago. 
Um, so I think hopefully that'll answer that question because um, when I was in training with syndesmosis injury, some people would keep them non-vaporing for three months, which, uh, I mean, when you think of it now, three months is a really long time. <laughs> and I don't think I've kept anyone non-vaporing three months for anything. Um, so I think that's another area that there, there's a lot of variability and uh, unknowns, and hopefully the new study will answer that question in that patient population. Well, that's exciting. We definitely look forward to that. I guess anything you'd want a reader to know that they maybe can't glean from the paper or the abstract, any specific final thoughts? Um, I think an isolated uh, ankle fractures can definitely weight bear uh, early, especially elderly people. You want to let elderly people weight bear sooner, much like a hip fracture. You don't want to fix it and cast them forever. Um, it should be noted that uh, patients with neuropathy were excluded. So if you have a terrible diabetic who's neuropathic, this, the, they would not have been enrolled in this study. They would have been excluded. So those patients are different, um, different population. They need um, more fixation and more uh, longer time for immobilization and protecting. Is a thought they just can't self-regulate the lack of pain response or? Exactly. I mean, they're, they're neuropathic and they have no uh, protective uh, sensation and they basically thrash it apart. <laughs> so. <laughs> gotcha. Great. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time. Congratulations. A great paper, obviously award-winning and has changed clinical practice, I think, for a lot of us. So I uh, appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you very much. And I want to say thanks to all my co-authors, uh, Dr. Kreter, Jenkinson, Makisha, Mitch Hall, um, and uh, Stephen. They were all involved with the study. They were all my mentors at the time. Um, so it definitely took a big team to complete the study. So thank you very much. <laughs> all right. We're going to talk with Justin Holler out of University of Utah. And we're going to talk about his paper, Plafond Malreduction and Taylor Dome Impaction Accelerates Arthrosis After Supination Adduction Ankle Fractures. Uh, this was published in 2021 in Foot and Ankle International. What prompted this study? Where were you at? What kind of discussions did you have with your co-authors? And, and what really was the genesis of this? Yeah, thanks, uh, Mary-Kate, for, for having me and um, to talk about this paper. Um, so it, this was a collaborative effort between um, Harborview at, um, or University of Washington and the University of Utah. And in particular, myself and Mike Givens um, talked about supination adduction ankle fractures and um, quite a bit during fellowship. And one of the things we noticed was that there's just not a whole lot of um, evidence out there on the treatment for these injuries, just because they're so rare. I mean, they make up maybe five to 10% of ankle fractures. And so, um, and most of the studies were pretty small series. So we thought um, to really investigate this injury, we would need to combine, um, you know, 10 years worth of data at two large centers in order to get enough patients with, um, to be able to say something about uh, how they're best treated and, and how patients do with with, uh, with this injury. Something I thought that was really interesting in your study was uh, how you separated SAD type ankle fractures from pilons. And the B-type pylons and curious what kind of discussion you had about how to do that and how to differentiate those two. And then uh, now, you know, a couple of years later, what do you what do you tell residents or medical students how to separate those two? Because they're kind of their cousins in a sense. Yeah, you, you're you're right. And honestly, a lot of times um, they're they're coded um, 
as as pylons because you know they're they do have articular impaction a lot of the time like we found almost three quarters of the time they do have some impaction so it is common for them to be coded that way and that's why we kind of when we were doing the chart review we had to review both um kind of bimalleolar ankle fractures as well as pylon fractures just to make sure we we're capturing all of the appropriate injuries um we we tried to stick to really true to the um, original definition where you had like a tension failure on the lateral side, whether it's like an avulsion of the fibula or a true transverse fibula fracture, um, and then an associated um, vertical injury to the medial malleolus, and um, and just try to note any associated articular injury or impaction with that. And that's kind of what we've continued to to teach the residents um, to to try to. There are definitely some variants out there uh, that look more like pylons. We try to exclude those just to be. Um, very strict with our indications. Yeah, definitely. That um, you commented on the rate of impaction at about three quarters. Did that surprise you? Did you think it was gonna be higher, or lower? Yeah, it certainly surprised us because what was out there before is I think around forty to sixty percent of the time, which is pretty high still. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the difference for ours is that we we had um, all CT scans to kind of confirm um, the impaction, which sometimes it can be kind of subtle. Um, but we thought it was important to really, um, quantify that. And I think for us going forward, at least I know, um, at Harborview and here at, at Utah, uh, all these injuries get CT scans going forward just to really, um, be able to, to figure out whether they have impaction and then, um, to be able to do address the impaction through anatomic reduction and make sure you, you, uh, maintain that. And so, um, but we were a little surprised with the, with the uh, amount of impaction that we saw in our um, in our results. With these, they are typically high energy mechanisms. From what you you published, do you see that these tend to have more issues with soft tissue swelling than the standard rotational ankle fracture? Um, does that affect your your timing to OR? Are you x fixing any of these? Is it, how do you manage the the soft tissue resolution in this case? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't know. I don't know if we really looked at that in this study, but it would have been an interesting thing to look at. Um, from personal experience, I don't. Um, I haven't really had that much trouble with acute fixation of these. Um, that being said, there still happens where they're too swollen for um, immediate internal fixation, but I think that's pretty rare. Um, whereas the flip side for me for a pylon fracture is is pretty much every time they get um, external fixation and um, delayed a production internal fixation. So it's kind of, you know, it, these these injuries kind of fit somewhere in between a ro standard rotational ankle and a pylon fracture. And that's just, and this is another kind of area where that remains true. It's like sometimes, but usually I can fix it uh, acutely. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly interesting, especially being like a, a partial articular injury. I think there's a, an element of stability. It's a little bit different than a true you know, full bore pylon. Um, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, I think an interesting element in your paper too is the Taylor dome lesion part of it. That is that something that you tend to look for more often now? Is that now that your awareness is kind of drawn to that a bit more? And how are you counseling some of these patients when you find that, that Taylor dome lesion? Because there's not a whole lot to do about it. Yeah, that was one of the more surprising findings, I think, from the from the study was that it was, I think we reported a 30% incidence of 
Taylor dome, what, like kind of osteochondral or just fracture, mm -hmm. um, particularly on the medial side. And it sort of makes sense mechanistically, but it was still surprising to see um, that frequent um, of an injury with these. And um, it certainly has us looking for it more, more often um, and counseling patients that, you know, they certainly have a higher risk of getting arthrosis um, with those injuries. And I think you're right. Currently, we, we, there's nothing to really do for it, but it's certainly um, that's kind of a, maybe a further future area of study is, is what to do about these osteochondral lesions of the talus and these supination adduction or even pelon fractures, these high energy ankle injuries where we know that um, the talus plays an important role and maybe we should be doing something different acutely for these injuries. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, um, and then what's your post-op protocol for these? Um, so usually they're in a splint for two weeks. Um, for me, I usually keep them non-weight bearing for eight to 10 weeks. And then again, that's, um, a little bit dependent on if it's like multi-fragmentary marginal impaction that we're uh, fixing versus if there's no impaction, it's probably more like six weeks. Um, that's something that's uh, still not quite figured out. I know we, we tried to mm -hmm. look at that, but there's certainly some bias in our study where, you know, worse injuries probably got longer delays to, to weight bearing. And um, so, but it, that would be something interesting to figure out. But currently I'm eight to 10 weeks before I let them uh, weight bear is tolerated um, somewhere between an ankle fraction and pelon for me. Yeah, that's a variation on the theme, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. The so if you had to redo this study, if you had to do it now or add anything to it, what what would you change about it or or augment in any way? Well, I think I think one big thing to do would be to kind of expand the study a little bit to get more patients because mm -hmm. even though we had two big centers doing it, we still only had I think maybe eighty patients or something like that that had uh, more than a year follow up, and so to really know how patients do, you need more than a year follow-up. Um, so to have more than 80 patients, we would um, really need to recruit other centers. So that would be like the first step to really be able to answer some of these more interesting, interesting questions about, you know, should we be treating these more like an ankle fracture, like a six weeks of non-weight bearing, fine. Um, I know some of my partners do that um, versus, you know, delayed weight bearing. We just didn't have the numbers and it, it's tough to really, um, to compare apples to apples in that situation. I think another thing that we we tried to look at but just didn't have um, enough patients was uh, fixation constructs. It, the majority of these got a um, medial-sided buttress plate and um, and plus minus lag screws. Uh, some of them got just just lag screws and. Um, it would be interesting to know if, if those did worse, um, I suspect they would, but, um, that'd be something else that we would look into a little bit more going forward though. I think the most interesting thing is what you brought up with the talus and what to do about these osteochondral lesions. And they apparently occur more frequently than, than we know if they're happening in 30% of patients. So, um, I think that's something for future study. I don't think we could have done anything different about that, but mm -hmm. any technical tips you have or pearls and pitfalls for addressing some of this impaction, like how to disimpact it, how to assess your reduction. And, and there can be pretty small fragments and any, any tips you have as far as stabilizing those fragments. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I certainly think um, 
even though they could be really small pieces, trying to keep a you know portion of the subchondral bone attached to the piece um, when you're levering it down is really important. Um, using the talus to almost support your um, as you're disimpacting it, because I've had situations not necessarily in uh, this ankle fracture pattern, but in other scenarios where you over disimpact and then it's really challenging to keep that piece from uh, to be stable. Like it, it really wants to be unstable if you over disimpact and completely separate it from its um, surrounding bone. So I think using the talus to almost kind of cradle it down into its more natural position with a large piece of subchondral bone attached to it. And I think these pieces require independent fixation. So if they're real small, it's going to be 045 wires. If they're a little larger, uh, think about a 2.0 or 2.4 plate with some, um, some lag screws through it to kind of raft the area and kind of contain the small piece. But for me, they, they always get independent fixation uh, separate from the um, buttress plate along the medial malleolus. So I'm Damaye Hargett. I'm an orthopedic trauma surgeon in Ventura, California at Ventura County Medical Center. And today I have Tim White joining us from um, the UK. And we're here to discuss his paper, a prospective randomized control trial of the fibular nail versus standard open reduction internal fixation for fixation of ankle fractures in their elderly, uh, published in the British Editorial Society of uh, Bone and Joint Surgery in 2016. Welcome, Tim. Hi. As I noticed in the paper um, that both groups were immediate weight bearing, um, but out of those 74 patients, 12 were smokers and two were diabetic. Uh, so I was just wondering in practice, does the weight, uh, does your weight bearing protocol change based on patient factors, say uh, diabetics and or smokers, or um, is the standard pretty much weight bearing uh, immediately post-op for all, all, all parties? Yeah, so the, the standard is weight bearing uh, fully post-op, both for fibula nail and for actual ankle fi fixation with plates and screws. Um, those that don't come into that cri those criteria um, would be diabetics with, with peripheral neuropathy, um, any other individual with peripheral neuropathy for, for another reason. We're also quite um, uh, cautious with patients with psychiatric problems. Um, and the, the final group, I guess, will be patients with large um, type 4 posterior malleolar fractures. But really, all other patients are weight-bearing straight away, which is particularly useful in, in this age group um, of, of elderly patients with ankle fractures in whom uh, restricted weight-bearing is such a problem. Yeah, it's very difficult for a lot to even be compliant with that. We can, we can tell no. them to do it, but a lot of them actually don't comply. No, absolutely. The diabetic ones are a difficult, different problem, really, aren't they? I think those that have a dense peripheral neuropathy, thankfully, are also those that have a, have a relatively low level of mobility anyway. And uh, we've tended to move to hind foot nails for those patients. Yeah, that, that seems to be the trend here as mm -hmm. well. So on, um, in the study, you noted, uh, if we take into consideration the cost between the two uh, groups, that there was a small... Um, financial advantage with the nail, despite the um, increased uh, initial cost due to the amount of complications related to um, hardware failure. But you also um, noted um, 
that the average time in the OR was less. Uh, do you have any roundabout numbers that you could provide? They weren't specific in the paper, but I'm assuming with the decreased OR time, that would also kind of add to the bottom line as far as overall decreased cost. What would you say the time average time difference is between the two in your hands? Yeah, so I guess in, in my hands, having done one or two of them, um, I, I rarely take more than 20 minutes to do a, a fibula nail. Um, we would, the, the setup is a little faster, I guess, because we don't use a tourniquet. Using a tourniquet less and less for ankle fractures in, in general, but certainly for a fibula nail, direct visualization of the fragments is, is not an issue. It's a fluoroscopic reduction, um, so no tourniquet required. Um, in this age group, if the medial malleolus lines up well after lateral malleolus fixation, we tend not to fix that. And, and published and, and uh, presented a paper at the OTA on that just this uh, just a couple of months ago. Um, and so it really makes for a very quick um, operation. So I would say, you know, it could be easily half the time required for an open reduction internal fixation. Wow, half. Yeah, so that's a significant, significant cost savings. How do you assess um, or how did you guys determine that that three millimeters was the acceptable uh, cutoff point um, in this paper? Yeah, this is the big mental jump, I think, that everyone has to go through to go from fixation with, with plates and screws to a nail. And so I think the, the key, there are a couple of key things. The first thing is, of course, that um, our experience of treating SER2 fractures that, that don't require surgery is that when you look carefully at the fracture, there is often a degree of displacement, um, and particularly on the lateral, the, the, the part that normally sits out most is that posterior spike. And so my start point there was if I would accept that position on an X-ray of an SER2 fracture that follow up, then it was then it was suitable for a for the X-ray at the end of the procedure. So that's where that three millimeters came from. In actual fact, it's it's rare for that to sit off much more. They usually do line up very nicely. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is is the fact that the in an SER2 fracture. That step off that we see is, is not due to the distal fragment having rotated away from the talus. It's due to the proximal fragment having rotated internally under the uh, action of the anterior and lateral compartment um, muscles. And there are a couple of nice papers um, from Michelson and Harper um, where they scanned the whole leg in patients with an SER2 fracture, looking to see which fragment it was that was displaced, and it's the proximal fragment. So when we look at those, we, we, there's no advantage in struggling to make the, the proximal fragment line up with the distal fragment. Um, and I think that's the big mental jump that we have to go through um, for acceptability for the nail. So um, we're taught as, as residents, and I guess our predecessors since uh, the AO group started fixing them regularly in the 1960s, that you've got to get the cortex perfect, otherwise the ankle's not perfect. Um, and the reason, of course, is that in the early stages, um, getting the cortex perfect was the only way to get the joint perfect, because we, they didn't use fluoroscopy. Um, so it's it a requirement in order to get the ankle joint reduced. Now that we have fluoroscopy, we can make that mortise perfect without having to be concerned about what that proximal fragment is doing. And so we, the, I think that's the big mental jump in acceptability 
that uh, people need to make. The whole the whole goal is to preserve the soft tissue. So some would argue if you're going to have to do an open reduction of the fracture, then why not just proceed with um, traditional open reduction internal fixation? Uh, what would be your response in that in that particular situation? Yeah, I, I can I can see that argument. I think the the counter would be that it's it's actually rarely required. Um, once you've got the, the the hang of the device, um, the other thing I think I would say is even if you um, do require to open it, then actually the length of the incision for to open the fracture and put a clamp on it is is quite a lot less than you would usually require to extend the plate above and below the fracture with with three screws on each side. Um, and then once the device is in, of course, there's no subcutaneous metal works. So you just have to close the skin over the bone rather than over the bone plus hardware. So I, I think even with that, there's a substantial advantage. What would you say, uh, you know, based on this paper and your experience, what would you say to the trauma surgeon or the foot and ankle surgeon who has read papers on this, but yet hasn't adopted this in their uh, uh, practice? Um, I would say that you are the, the technique aims to give you an anatomical reduction of the mortis um, and enough stability for the patient to wait there with minimal risk of, of um, complications. Um, and, and that really is, is, after all, exactly what we're after for our patients. And that there is an ex now an extensive literature from, from many centers, including several really good meta-analyses that confirm that that is the case and it is achieved across the piece in, in several senses, not just in enthusiasts um, like us in, in Edinburgh, but actually all across the world, um, that level of success can be achieved predictably um, with these devices. Now, so in your practice, um, what's your current indications like? Are you predominantly doing fibular nailing now, or is there still some role for? I mean, there's always some role, but what are your um, what are your indications for who you're nailing and who's getting your traditional uh, plate and screw construct? Yeah, so I think personally, I would I would like to use a fibular nail for virtually all of our fractures, um, but the um, the side effect profile with relation to soft tissues is not such a significant problem for patients under the age of 60, 65 with, with good tissues. So those patients still get standard AO anatomical reduction and um, lag screw fixation with a plate. So the, the fibular nail in our hands at the moment is for the over 65s, those with compromised soft tissues of any age, diabetics, and the other group, uh, the other two groups, I guess, are those with pronation abduction fractures, where there's a long length of comminuted bone that you, you wouldn't be able to reduce and compress any way that you're going to be looking to, to bridge, even if your plate um, are ideal. Um, and the final group are pilon fractures. And to be able to give some stability to the lateral column without adding um, another long incision to the ankle in that situation, has a great deal of advantage as well. So we, we use one incision or sometimes two for the tibia, but avoid making a third incision for the fibula. You've uh, published uh, some biomechanical studies looking at uh, nail construct uh, versus plating and demonstrated that there was higher a load to failure with uh, fibula nails. Um, would you like to help uh, elaborate on that a little bit or provide us um, some more information on biomechanical uh, benefits of nail over a plate? 
Yeah, can I can I share my screen yes, uh, and just show you? So we we um, we took we did a study on the biomechanical strength of the of the nail, um, and we had paired um, cadaveric ankles. Can you see that? Okay. Yes, I can. That appeared. Okay, great. So these are paired cadaveric ankles, and we took one and we did a standard fixation of an SER four fracture um, with a plate and screws and a, and a leg screw. Um, and one with a fibula nail. And you're quite right, the, the, the peak torque to failure, so the strength of the construct is higher for the fibula nail. But what was also interested was a mechanism of failure. So if I just show you the plate and screws, first of all. Okay, so can you see that? Do you see that that yes, well, mm -hmm. fails in more or less the manner that you might expect clinically? Um, the, the, the fracture eventually uh, distorts to the point where the screws pull out and, and the plate becomes displaced. Okay, and if you compare that with the, the fibula nail, ultimately, if you, if you twist that hard enough, it also fails. But look what happens there. The, the fibula fracture itself has mm -hmm. remained aligned. And what's happened there is that the, the distal fibula has pulled off the talus and the calcaneus, which is not a mechanism of, of failure that we see clinically. So that gives you an indication of just how tough and powerful that construct is when compared to preventing pullout of, mm -hmm. of individual screws in, uh, in osteoporotic bone. And we repeated that study with, with locked plates and, and exactly the same findings uh, are seen. Yeah, so that's uh, you know, further adding to the, the pros. Um, the pros of using a nail over uh, your standard fixations, especially in the um, in the elderly. Okay, so that those are four uh, interviews that we were going to go through. We can open up to some questions now. I saw a couple in the uh, the Q and A box. If uh, Dr. Saez or Erdman, if you guys want to. Yeah, for sure. So the first question was for Dr. Dagon in your study. You know, what was the construct you were using for fixing the uh, fibula? There's a question, was it anatomic locking plates or a different type of construct? And then I think, you know, for the whole panel, is there any way that like, depends, like the way you fix an ankle, do you can, is there a way to load people up or, you know, put in more implants that you can then more reliably let these people vapor sooner with less concern? Or is it mostly based on fracture pattern? So maybe Dr. Dagan, you want to talk about the study first, though? Yes, um, that's a great question. So the fixation was plate and screws with one third tubular, uh, one third um, tubular uh, plates. Essentially, we didn't have uh, anatomic plates at the time, so one third, one third tubular plates. Or is that what you're still using, or have you switched to anatomic locking, maybe for biomechanical strength, or let people walk sooner? Um, to be honest, now I'm breaking the budget and using the pre-contoured fibular plates that we didn't have in Canada at the time. I just find they're lower profile and potentially decreased risk of hardware removal, but I have no um, scientific evidence for that. If it's higher up, so the distal fractures, I use the pre-contour just because I can get a better cluster distally. It makes me feel better. But if it's higher up, um, like Weber sees, then I would just use a one-third tubular plate, one-third tubular plate. <laughs> All right. 
And then um, any of the other um, authors have any thoughts on, you know, whether your choice of implant or amount of fixation changes whether you weight bear or not? Or is everyone just everything gets weight bears tolerated? Yeah, I, uh, I guess I can jump in. I uh, almost always still just use the simplest uh, one-third tubular construct. And, you know, it's just amazing. Just like Nilofar said, you, you really don't have to go to a locking plate to reduce the risk of failure. It's for other reasons like hardware prominence and that kind of thing for the average healthy younger person that you're operating on. You know, for the smokers, diabetics, and people you're a little less sure about, then probably a little more extensive hardware is going to be helpful. But for the average person, you know, the cheap plate works great and you can allow weight bearing with a pretty low risk profile. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a question from Dr. White? Uh, yes, he's not uh, on the line, but we might try to field it. Okay. <laughs> I guess it'd be difficult to answer if he's not online. I was, um, he mentioned the uh, hind foot nailing and I was wondering um, who he's doing that for instead of the fibular nail. He mentioned diabetics for both. So I was yeah. wondering if he does. We didn't really elaborate on that, but the impression I got was that um, the, the hind foot nail is uh, typically reserved for the diabetic neuropathic um, patients that have um, poor sensory uh, perception, um, and that way they can immediately weight bear. But he didn't, we didn't we didn't dive into that. That was a whole other conversation. But he implied that in, um, in our conversation that even though the people in nail he's using over sixty five, the diabetics is kind of a subset population of that where hind foot nail is uh, more preferred. Right. Thank you. Are any of the other panelists using uh, hind foot nails for acute fractures? in certain patient populations? Yeah, I mean, I use them a lot and uh, basically that patient population, diabetic neuropathics, or I also use it for elderly frail that I just wanna get up and walk right away. Uh, I don't use the fibular nails. Um, I should look into that more. Tim's study is always very convincing. Um, <laughs> but uh, like we had a 92 year old with a Bimel, and to be honest, I'd put a hind foot nail and let her walk on it right away. Yeah, I think um, similar in those uh, diabetic uh, trimal ankle fractures uh, to one, minimize the amount of the soft tissue wounds and to uh, allow earlier um, weight bearing. And then um, just a second, uh, your comment about Dr. White. Um, um, I'm at a county hospital, cost is everything here, and um, haven't used an intramedullary, fibula intramedullary nail previously. You know, the, some of the thought process is, um, you know, uh, a cortical screw is significantly much cheaper. And I, if I'm going for intramedullary fixation, I could opt for that in some situations. But having said that, I actually, uh, a week after talking to Dr. White, uh, did my first fibula nail and a actually in a 56 year old, but hemoglobin A1C of 12. So that was an indication for me. Um, but um, very, very convincing conversation. And after doing that, I can put the link in there as well. I was asking about some long-term follow-up uh, for these fibula nail patients. Um, and there is a, they have a, a study in JOT from I think 2019 or so, um, looking at 300 patients, um, over 300 patients after fibula nails and the complication rate is, and the failure rate is very low. Um, and so I can put that in the chat room too. Also, if people are interested in looking at that, 
Um, so the outcomes are actually pretty, um, pretty strong um, in regards to fibula nailing. So I don't know how many people have adopted it. Uh, as far as the panelists on how many people are doing fibula intramedullary nails than anyone or over 65. My partners keep trying to convince me, but I haven't, haven't drank the Kool-Aid yet. I've only done it in like the people who are older or soft tissue wounds. I think for younger people, I'm still trying to get a perfect anton reduction because the ankle's a joint. And I know the literature goes back and forth, but you know, you look at the old like biologic studies, that one millimeter shift rule, I still kind of go by that. If I want the ankle to last 40, 50, 60 years. So I've been a little hesitant on the nails for younger people. Yeah, I'm still a plate and screws guy and uh, haven't have yet to do a fibular now. I've done the uh, cortical screw technique that you mentioned um, a lot for pylons, particularly. That's a, that's that works well. Um, I don't have any experience with the fibular nail per se, but I'd be really interested if that would allow us to use less hindfoot nails in the frail elderly and not completely fuse ankle joints basically and still get away with a really low complication risk. So I, then maybe there's a great window of opportunity for uh, for a study or for a clinical use here. Yeah, I agree. I think with my N of one, <laughs> um, I would say that the time was significantly less. I think it was like 12 minutes uh, for the whole fibula nail. I still did the medial mile, um, but um, the learning curve was very, it was very easy. Um, it's just like anything else, start point, um, like any other nail that we traditionally do, it just is um, a different train of thought. I think it's a very simple fracture pattern. So when we're thinking simple fracture pattern, AO technique, um, it, you know, it wants um, an anatomic reduction and go for direct healing. So I think that kind of intramedullary fixation, indirect approach is not as intuitive for such a simple fracture pattern in our uh, typical SER, um, our SER pattern fractures. Um, but I think there's enough literature out there to support it. Um, and I think the cost is probably the, the biggest factor if you're, if you're looking at the cost analysis. And you know, he discussed the decreased OR time. And even though the implant itself costs more, if you are at a center where you're doing more hardware removal, then, um, then the overall cost may be less because there's, they're not removing these as often. So there's some argument for that. Um, it might be nice to flow into from that discussion the the slides and the video he provided to us since he wasn't able to be here. Yeah, I thought, you know, just from the community that I'm in and people that I talk to, fibular nailing in the trauma community, or at least my network of people I talk to with trauma is not a a, a um, highly practiced um, technique as far as fibular nailing. So I was just asking him some tips and, tips and tricks about his technique and and he uh, provided a nice little uh, fluoroscopic guided kind of technique um, on it if, any, if, if uh, Carolyn wants to show it. Yeah, Chris, are you able to play that video? About a minute and a half, so. So this is, this is an example of how once you've um, developed some familiarity, an open reduction isn't required. So um, this really exemplifies the importance of just being certain that you've got the correct start point and then the correct trajectory um, for your first drill. So I've taken the, the start point there, just at the very tip of the fibula. Um, and then we pass this six millimeter drill into that distal fragment. 
and it follows parallel to the lateral cortex of the uh, of the fibula there up um, and uh, to the height um, that's required to fit in the, the fatter part of the nail and as you can see even just starting to engage the nail the the, the drill there the mortise starts to line up mm -hmm. so that fat drill is then exchanged for a a, a t-handle um, which then prepares the proximal aspect of the fibula and then that allows the nail Now, there's a, there's a couple of uh, steps there the first step was to put in the, the distal locking screw and then um, I'm sorry I didn't have the picture there but you, you then um, reduce or backslap that quite commonly in order to get the anatomical length and you can mm -hmm. of course then rotate that distal fragment exactly into the the correct rotation um, because the lateral malleolus is attached to the nail which is attached to the jig which is attached to your hand so you can position that mm -hmm. exactly wherever you want to and then that is uh, completed um, with a, a proximal locking screw which you can see there which then stops the talus from escaping laterally yeah and you were you were uh, able to avoid all the blisters too so that's great yeah <laughs> I was pleased with that that particular piece of good luck <laughs> okay and then also from the Q&A, someone mentioned that they use rush rods occasionally as well with diabetic patients um, at pretty low cost. So something to keep in mind. Um, Dr. Erdman, I think you had a, a question as well. Yeah, there was a question. It was actually on my, my list of questions from Dr. Holler that we didn't get to. But um, the use of void fillers, your void filler of choice and pros and cons and uh, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think typically for these impaction injuries, they're pretty small. And so usually I'll use crush cancellous graft to backfill the impaction. I will use a calcium phosphate if it's a, a large void that's left by the impaction, or if there's particularly bad bone. I think one issue that you can run into with calcium phosphate is just the um, the liquid kind of runs into your uh, fracture along the medial mound can make it difficult to uh, reduce that. So I think if you're going to choose calcium phosphate, just be mindful of, uh, of that and make sure you let it completely set up and uh, remove any excess calcium phosphate before you try to reduce the medial mound. But um, for me in general, it's a, it's cancellous uh, uh, crushed allograft. I'd be interested, uh, Justin, are you doing anything for the tailored dome? Like if it's, you know, like a little micro fracture, or there's some off the shelf stuff you can put in there. Are you kind of just letting it be when you see it now? Um, well, since we kind of look back through these and, and publish this, haven't really seen any tailored dome impaction. But uh, like you said, I think it's something for future investigation as to whether we should try to be doing microfracture in these or trying to do something off the shelf, some kind of allograft, um, because 30% is pretty high. It's, it's probably there more often than we realize, and it's we just haven't been looking for it. And I think um, we've also started to look at that for pilon fractures. I think it's it's honestly more common pilon fractures than what we, we think it is. So I think there's certainly an area of investigation here that hopefully, um, somebody here or um, we'll look into, but we're certainly interested in it. But I don't currently do it. What about you, Augie? Yeah, I do. If it's contained, I'll like put drill some stuff with a K wire and then I've started using an off the shelf, you know, uh, also uh, layering that you can do is kind of minced cartilage you can pack in there. 
I honestly don't have any data because I've just done it a few times, but it seems like, I don't know, it makes sense to address at the time. You kind of know it's not going to just heal itself. Yeah, it's probably also the best, easiest to access, right? Because you just move the medial mount out of the way and it's it's, yeah. it's right there. Yeah. So I think it makes sense. I have a question for Justin and also all the uh, panelists on regarding those um, Taylor Dome impaction. We know it's there, like you said, about a third of patients have it. Um, how long are you guys following these patients post-op? You know, they have radiographic union, their range of motion is full, their weight bearing. Um, is anyone having patients follow up for annual x-rays or you just counsel them? Um, because we know it's there, we, some, some are worse than others. And what's your indication for following people further out or, or, or do, we, do you not at all? I'm just curious what other people are doing. Yeah, for all articular injuries, uh, I'll call people for, for a year and um, continue to follow them if they're still having issues, but usually try to follow them for a year and whether they come back or not, it's a little bit up to them. But for this study, we had uh, everybody that was included in the uh, outcomes portion was it was at least a year. And I think, I forget what the range was, but usually we try to follow them uh, longer term just so we can have a better idea of, of what happens to their joint, uh, especially with these impaction injuries. Um, I had a question uh, for Dr. Sanders. Uh, you know, the concept of cost effectiveness has come up a couple times during this session, um, especially with regards to operative versus non-operative. I know you've been involved in a study on the topic. Can you give us your thoughts on the cost effectiveness uh, as it relates to operative or non-operative management of fibula fractures? Uh, I can try. I don't know how good it'll be. Um, honestly, the, the big unanswered question for us is, is exactly what I think you guys were just alluding to, which is how many of these people with risk of arthritis down the road actually go in and develop problems. Um, we did do a cost-effective analysis on the operative and non-operative side, and it, it actually favored the operative side, but it was really driven by whatever cost a reoperation would have in the future. And really we had no data to base that on other than best guess. So our estimate was that you know maybe 10% of people would run into problems down the road. But I have no idea what the real number is because we just don't have that quality of literature. And that's where, you know, just just like Justin just said, longer follow-up would be great, a little more depth of uh, of knowledge about what the natural history of all of these different injuries are is going to be really essential for us to make great decisions in the future. I have a question. Oh sorry. Uh, I have a question. When you are treating someone non-operatively, how often are you bringing them back to clinic to make sure the reduction isn't lost or something doesn't change? Because that's, you know, one of the downsides of, I think, non-op is the monitoring. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, what we've typically done is bring them back at about two weeks after the first visit, because I think you still have a window there to do something operative if there's been a shift or some movement without really getting into a higher complication profile. Um, and then if they're good at two weeks, then I leave them until that six-week follow-up check and then do a recheck then. Hopefully, going to see some healing and, and be able to progress their rehab at that stage. Um, I guess ideally, it'd be a little bit more often than that. But, uh, you know, like most fracture clinics, you have to be fairly pragmatic in how often you can bring people back. In terms of the, the stress exam, um, I've heard the argument that there's some patients that you know you don't want to operate on them anyway. So if you have a non-displaced Weber B, 
Are there people you're not stressing? Yeah, absolutely. I think the majority um, are not being stressed with a formal stress examination. Um, going more from a history of weight bearing on it, or you know, maybe a, um, like you said, if it's a patient profile that you really definitely don't want to operate on, then I, I'm not going to do a test that's going to lead me to a higher risk of thinking I might need an operation. So for sure, those ones I just treat very conservatively in general. I know in residency, when this study came out, we kind of moved away from doing stress exams almost essentially altogether. Um, what are your thoughts on that for, say, younger patients, good surgical candidates? Well, I, I'd be interested to in know what uh, other guys do or other people do in terms of their treatment uh, paradigm for these. I actually think that if someone's really a you know young, healthy, athletic person um, and needs perfection in terms of their outcome or where you think that perfection is actually going to improve their long-term result, then a stress test or a weight-bearing view or a gravity stress test or some other test is, is actually pretty helpful still in helping us make sure that we're going to get um, ultimately a great result. But I think you do know that you know we can all operate on these and, and almost guarantee that they're going to turn out just about perfect in the vast majority of people other than the risk of some hardware complications. Okay. Dr. Well, Sanders, can I, can I ask a question? Sorry, so if you don't stress them with the Weber bees, do you let them weight bear right away and then see them at two weeks and essentially then you know if it's shifted or not or do you protect them or what are you doing? If I'm, if I've got someone that I, uh, you know, like uh, MK was mentioning earlier, if I'm not worried about somebody having to operate on them, then I'm gonna treat them very conservatively, non weight bearing in a cast. If it's somebody that uh, I think is sort of borderline, I'm able to bring them back in two weeks, then I'll lean more towards uh, protective weight bearing in an air boot and bring them back at the two week mark and see them then. And one of the things that the stress test is for a lot of these ones, they, um, you know, I mean, they spring right back after you do the stress exam. You externally rotate them and they, and they go right back into anatomical alignment. So there's something that's intact there that's uh, uh, leading them more towards staying reduced as opposed to staying displaced. So just to remind everyone, um, next Journal Club sessions are in February on tibial shafts, and then March 14th, elder, fem elder femoral neck fractures, and then our patellar fractures in April. So with that said, I wanna thank everyone for participating. I wanna thank my co-moderators and all of the authors for coming tonight. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, I thought it was a great session. Thank you.